Hello and welcome into the KE Report. I'm your host, Shad Markowitz, and I'm speaking today with John Rubino, runs his newsletter over at Substack, and we will put a link to John's Substack channel below this interview. So definitely click on that if you want to follow along. And John, it's always great getting you on the show because we always have a bevy of things to discuss. And today we're going to maybe start off on the macro side of things. We were chatting a little bit off mic before we started recording today, and you were mentioning we may be getting into that stagflationary environment. And I'm not hearing as much about stagflation these days. So maybe unpack what you're looking at in the data that makes you think maybe we are getting closer to stagflation. Hey, Chad. Well, yeah, it, it looked like basically a soft landing for a while there because inflation was coming down and growth was stable and everything. But just in the last couple of weeks, inflation picked back up, especially the services side of inflation, where one of the, uh, the key metrics uh, just came in at an 8% annual rate in the U.S., now, which is obviously way too high. So everybody um, adjusted their expectations for what the Fed was going to do. Instead of massive cuts this year in interest rates, now people are talking about higher for longer. So the uh, 10-year Treasury yield in the U.S. went up on that. Um, and then retail sales came out, and it was much lower than people expected. So, you know, stickily high inflation and weakening consumer spending um, leading to a, a weaker economy. That's stagflation, you know? So all of a sudden, we've got some stats that kind of point in that direction. Um, and then if so, I mean, you can't read that much into just monthly numbers because there's a lot of noise in them. But um, if the longer trends turn out to back up these monthly numbers, then we're looking at a, a scenario that's like a mild version of the 1970s at the moment. And the 1970s was an absolutely chaotic a decade from a monetary standpoint. It was uh, really the only currency crisis that we've had in our lifetimes or in, in almost anyone living's lifetime. And if we start creeping back in that direction and that becomes the template for what people start to um, start to believe is coming, then get ready for chaos, <laughs> you know, because in the 70s, interest rates spiked and inflation went up to double digits and gold and silver just went through the roof. They went parabolic. So uh, the 1970s recurring would be incredibly chaotic, incredibly bad for most people and great for gold bugs. Well, John, we'd had a couple other guests on the show that mentioned we could be getting into a 1970s style environment. But if you think back to that era, you know, we also had really high energy prices and energy prices have moderated. And the other thing people keep pointing to to say, well, this can't be stagflation because look at the labor markets. Now, I know we've talked a lot about the jobs data and how that is massaged and how it's reported. And it's it's a little wacky and it's often for like the last year or so has been revised lower. There's been a few months that they revised higher, but I think most people are starting to see through some of the shenanigans in the jobs report, but you'd still have to argue all that aside, the labor markets aren't the same as they were in the 1970s. So maybe let's speak to that real quick. How does energy and you know, the price of commodities with the inflation picture tie in and also how does the labor markets tie in? Well, yeah, most of the uh, the macro numbers until just this last couple of weeks weren't pointing at a return of the 1970s because of what you mentioned. You know, oil isn't cheap. It's uh, it's around $80 now. I think $79 is the last reading that I saw. And that's that, that's expensive, but not terrifyingly so. Wages are going up in the U.S., but there's also a lot of layoffs, which is going to moderate wage increases. So there, there are, those are the reasons that people were thinking about soft landing. 
And then this last batch of numbers came out and caused a lot of people to reevaluate. So we, we need more numbers to know for sure. And I wouldn't say we're in a, a 1970s kind of environment right now, except that, you know, part of the reason energy costs went way up in the 70s was because we had turmoil in the Middle East. <laughs> and it seems like we're days away from, you know, some kind of a shooting war between the U.S. and Iran or, uh, you know, at least you know, we're bombing Yemen and Syria and Iraq right now. So so we do have turmoil in the Middle East that could easily impact the energy markets. So, we're, you know, we're not in the clear from that. And uh, the services inflation was um, pretty scary this time around. So, yes, it's, it's not the 1970s yet, but uh, to the extent that it starts leaning that way, I think a lot of people would try to front run it. And that's, that would be the interesting thing from the financial markets perspective is that uh, if people start thinking that's possible and they start acting accordingly, uh, you know, there's not enough silver out there to satisfy the demand that would happen. And uh, there's, you know, central banks are buying up all the excess gold out there. So there wouldn't be a lot of slack in those markets, wouldn't be a lot of leeway. And we could easily see precious metals react to something like that. So again, you know, we need more data, but the latest batch is definitely worth paying attention to because it points in a different direction than the previous year's data has pointed. Yeah, John, if we did get in more economic data leading us towards stagflation, that probably would be a boon for the precious metals because look how well gold and silver did in the late 70s in particular in that kind of a chaotic environment that you're mentioning. Let's talk about gold because gold has been frustrating the pants off people, even though it's above $2,000. Now, it did briefly dip below it last week. But if you look at a weekly chart and you look at everything since late November to present, gold's mostly been tracking time across the last couple months above 2000. So the question is, are we starting to see 2000 as a floor in the minds of investors where it's a good level of support or are we at danger of breaking down after last week's little dip below it? Well, we did test it last week and uh, it, it was a quick dip below 2000 and then it got right back up. So I think you can still call 2000 support, but, uh, you know, it's not enough above 2000 that one bad day couldn't put it back there again. So um, so it's not really anything rock solid. Like if it was uh, 2150 right now, then we could be talking about 2000 as as pretty solid support. But um, it was nice that it. When it got below last week, it bounced right back up. In other words, a lot of buying came in because um, for one reason, you know, the, um, that people are thinking of 2000 as support and they're using that as a guide to what to do. Um, and But there are other factors in the gold market right now, which one, the biggest of which is really aggressive central bank buying. Um, and they don't seem too price sensitive anymore. They're just, it's like their dollar cost averaging or something like that, especially China. Uh, and that's a really good thing for the market because, you know, a, a thousand tons of gold being taken off the market in a year is a big deal when you consider that there's maybe 4,000 tons um, available each year of new gold. So that's that's a big new factor in the gold market. And um, I think it adds to the 2000 as support. You got these big players who are going to come in on any kind of weakness, certainly. So, uh, so far, so good. And the gold above 2000 as kind of a non event had to do with the mining stocks because they didn't really follow. The miners just stayed at their depressed levels as gold went up and they got cheaper and cheaper relative to the underlying, underlying metal. And 
one of the questions about gold being in the 2000s was whether it would translate into good results for the miners. In other words, rising earnings, rising cash flow. And um, this being earnings season, we're seeing some earnings from these miners, and, and so far, so good. Barrick just announced that basically everything was up sequentially, and 2023 was a really nice, strong year. And Kinross and uh, Agnet Co Eagle came out with basically the same thing, higher cash flow year over year um, and uh, wider margins. So it's kind of, uh, it, you know, gold is helping the results of these companies and they're controlling their costs enough that um, rising wages and higher energy costs aren't offsetting higher gold. So that's, that's a really good sign for the miners because um, one of the things that uh, almost guarantees a rising stock price is rising earnings and, and uh, cash flow because a lot of people screen for that. And when they see it happening, they buy, you know? And so that's completely conceivable going forward if gold stays high and uh, the cash flow stays copious for these guys. That's a really good thing for their stock prices. But we've still got Newmont and Franco Nevada to report though. So, you know, assuming they're in line with the other miners, then that's that's a really good um, fundamental picture for the, the gold miners, but you know, Newmont has not done so well lately operationally. And Franco Nevada has the, the Cobra Panama thing where it has to calculate its impairment with that big mine being closed. And in other words, it's going to have to say what it loses on the, uh, the royalty agreement that may not exist anymore for them. And that might offset higher earnings otherwise. So we'll have to see. But so far, so good with the miners. Well, John, it's an interesting topic you bring up because we must have discussed this dozens and dozens of times with folks about the underperformance of the gold equities versus the gold price. Everybody sees it. Everybody notices it's frustrating people to no end. But when you hear people, what they say is, well, look at how much costs have gone up. It's like, OK, but so has the metal price. And so the average price that the producers were selling gold for in Q4 was right around 2000 thereabouts. It depended on the company, what they were actually selling it at. But that's $100 or $200 more than where they were selling it, you know, a couple quarters before that. So while their costs have gone up by $50, $100, so is the gold price. I want to run this by you because I'd love to get your thoughts on this. There's a lot of people that have said, well, the margin compression in the industry is what's killing these mining stocks. But when you look at it, back in 2016, the margins were less than they are now. And yet the stocks were at very high valuations compared to where they're at today, relatively speaking, on that 2016 rally. When you go back to 2010 and 2011, which was the heyday for precious metals, the margins were about the same as they are now. So I don't buy the argument that the margins have been so compressed. That's why these mining stocks are underperforming. What I've noticed, John, over the last couple of years is every time gold got to 2000, there was less and less of a response in these mining stocks, irregardless of where their margins were. It almost seems like it's a sentiment driven problem more so than a margin problem. What are your thoughts on that topic? Well, in the the two previous periods that you um, you talked about, gold and silver had, themselves had really nice runs. Uh, you know, the early 2016 is a lot of people are still looking back on that and thinking, why can't it be like that all the time? That was just a, a great run for precious metals, and that got people excited about the underlying or or the the miners. Right now, we've had what three and a half years of boring precious metals markets where gold would get up to 2000 and get smacked back down over and over again. So people have concluded that this is a boring market. 
and a little bit of margin improvement on the, the part of miners is not enough to get them excited. So it, it takes a little while to change people's minds once they um, conclude that something is true. Uh, but gold above 2000 and miners reporting rising cash flow would do it. Might take a few quarters to convince people that uh, that this is now a healthy industry with a, a positive trajectory. But that's what would do it. You know, if gold stays strong and the miners keep their costs under control and report higher cash flow and good earnings and stuff like that, you'll see them show up on a lot of screens. Because I think that's not going to be the case for a lot of industries in uh, the coming year. You know, tech has really, it feels like it's peaked. You know, they're getting whacked again today. And, you know, the AI companies are, uh, you know, they've got a tiger by the tail. They're really rocking. But their stocks probably have more than reflected their good operating, operating situation. And that's true for a lot of other industries. You know, retailing is not that strong right now. Lots of other industries are, are going to be reporting down quarters. And if the gold miners are reporting positive or at least really good and stable results, then uh, that, that will make them stand out. So I think everything depends on gold staying up. <laughs> but if it does, then the, the, the story gets very favorable in just a couple of quarters for the miners. And I think they'll start behaving better. It's going to be interesting to see if some of the analysts on Wall Street or Bay Street start noticing how well as a business some of these mining companies are doing generating cash flows compared to some of the tech sectors that maybe have been priced to perfection. So we'll keep watching that. I'll throw another one at you, though, here, John, and that is we've done all this research looking at and especially our friend Craig Hemke has done a lot of research looking at how silver tracks relative to the GDX. And there's over a 90%, I think he said a 97% correlation in his macro cast this year. So there's definitely a correlation between the speculative precious metal silver and the mining stocks, be they gold or silver. So it's not just silver stocks, it's also gold stocks that seem to track that. Until silver can get out of its funk then, I don't know that we're going to see a lot of boosts. Do you think that that is also affecting the sentiment? Because in 2010 and 2011 or 2016, as you just pointed out, silver was rocking and rolling. Right now, silver's been boring people to tears. Do you think we need to see more of a breakout in silver, even more so than gold, to really get the mining equities moving? Well, I think gold is the dominant factor because that's what most people pay attention to. But rising silver would be awesome. <laughs> you know, it would definitely have an impact on anything with silver in its name, for sure. And to the extent that it, you know, gold bugs and silver bugs are basically the same group. So if something happens to get um, people who are already favorably disposed towards gold excited, you know, in other words, silver going from 23 today to 35 or something like that, let's say, which it has done several times in its past, that would lead a lot of people to load up on gold miners as well as silver miners and silver itself. So, yeah, uh, it, it, there would totally be knock on effects to a big run in silver. And, uh, you know, there, there's there's always a real possibility of a big run up in silver because it's such a tiny market. It doesn't take too many players with serious cash to buy a lot of silver and send the price through the roof. And then that gets everybody else excited. So, you know, it's a real possibility that silver bails out the gold miners. But I, I think gold is the bigger story. And if gold stays strong, then that, that helps silver too, because that, it just works the other way. You know, there, there's another sector of 
precious metals that are making money for people and getting people excited. And that bleeds over into all the other parts of that complex. So and one other thing that, that is a useful part of this story is that some generalist money is starting to flow into the big miners. Stanley Druckenmiller, who is a, a major mainstream portfolio manager, in the most recent quarter, sold a lot of tech and bought some of the big miners, I think Newmont and Barrick. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, given the, you know, the amount of generalist money that's out there, it doesn't take a lot of it in percentage terms to have a big impact on precious metals. And somebody like Druckenmiller um, doing something like buying big, the, big gold miners and then publicizing it gives everybody else permission to look at that sector too. And uh, when people today look at the big gold and silver miners, or at least big gold miners, they're going to see positive cash flow trends, you know? So this is a good time for them to be introduced to the big miners. And again, really doesn't take much generalist money to move precious metals. So that's another factor. We've got good fundamentals. We've got some outside money nibbling at, uh, at the big gold miners. And, uh, and who knows? Silver is extremely cheap right now and could easily move in percentage terms a lot from here. Yeah, John, it sure would be nice to see more generalist money and more people like Stanley Druckenmiller getting the word out that there's some good valuations in the larger gold and silver companies. And then over time, that money tends to trickle down the food chain into the juniors. Let's wrap up with the juniors because there has been a lot of companies putting out good news. Now, right now, sometimes it's falling on deaf ears and it seems like these companies, even if they're doing stellar work, they're not really getting the market love for it. Eventually, do you think that all the value creation that these junior companies, the quality companies are doing, starts to get recognized in the market? I think it kind of has to eventually. Just in the last week or so, Dolly Varden, IAD Gold, Nevada King, and Newfound all reported really excellent um, drill results. The kind of drill results that in a precious metals bull market would be, uh, you know, a 10% day for a stock like that. They would they would immediately um, generate a lot of enthusiasm. And like you said, it falls on deaf, deaf ears in this kind of a market. But it improves our understanding of these companies and it, it dramatically improves what they've got. You know, they're proving that they have world-class deposits. And at some point, um, that's got to have an effect on their stock prices. It's just a question of uh, how long that's going to take. And, you know, the other thing in this space is that um, with a company like a, an Explorer, even a good Explorer, you know, there's financings out there, right? They're going to have to announce that they raised another $20 million and that they, they had to attach uh, warrants to the stock that they sold and everything. So that, that's this big risk is sitting out there with these guys. And you don't want to just take a big position in them and have them announce something like that. Because, uh, you know, on, on the subject of um, financing, uh, a couple happened last week that were, were really good um, polar opposites, you know, so you kind of know what to expect um, by, by seeing the extremes. And uh, one was Lion One that uh, is doing a great job operationally. They're, they're ahead of schedule to bring a mine online that looks like a high grade, very productive mine, you know, so just operationally, they're a successful company, but they're, you know, they need more money to do it. And they just announced a... Um, stock offering where they offered units of one share stock and one warrant 
at a price that was below the recent stock price. So the, uh, you know, the, the price just got smacked for that. Everybody sold the stock and, uh, you know, they, they got the deal done. They have some cash going forward, but they had, they did it at uh, the price of some dilution. And then at the other end of the spectrum, Nevada King just did a financing where they combined it with a spin out of, they have a huge land package in Nevada. So they, they, uh, they spun out or they announced plans to spin out a bunch of their le- non-core assets into a new company. And they gave that company a 3% um, royalty on some of the core stuff that they're keeping. So that new company has relatively early predictable cash flow along with a bunch of really prospective properties. And they did that along with a financing. Oh, and the insiders bought the whole financing. So the CEO bought more. They brought in a new um, strategic investor to buy a bunch and um, people on the board bought stock. And so it was as non-dilutive as you can get with uh, an equity offering. And basically the stock went up on the day that that was announced when everything else was down, you know. So, so it's possible to raise money in a way that, um, that makes your shareholders happy if you've got some assets to throw around like Nevada King did. So, so anyhow, those are, those are kind of at the, at the um, opposite ends of the spectrum now of what we should expect from these other explorers going forward. And hopefully the next batch of financings are closer to Nevada King than Lion One. I think it's a nice contrast you provided there between the two different kinds of financings, or I guess the reactions to the financing based on the ways the company did it. I think the other thing that hurt Lion One was it surprised the market a little bit where with the Nevada King financing, you're getting a little bit more bang for the buck with the spin-out company, and you're seeing that strong insider buying, which is always a good sign. I think that's why the market reacted so well. But to mm-hmm. your point, a lot of these companies, and you mentioned Dolly Varden, you mentioned I-80, also putting out some good drill results. Eventually, these drill results will matter, but right now they don't seem to matter much, John. But we're going to keep following along with the sector regardless. There is a time where the sentiment will turn. And we'll see the reverse scenario where even bad news gets bought. But for right now, it's a tough sledding for precious metals investors. But you outlined a couple macro events and a couple key things in the gold market and silver market that we should keep our eyes on moving forward. If people like getting John's thoughts, definitely click on the link below. It takes you over to his Substack channel. I definitely recommend following along with John's work. And John, until next time, always looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Chad. Talk to you soon.